This is She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've spent my entire career as an advocate, connector, problem solver, and master communicator at the highest levels of government and corporate America. I'm also a mom and a master juggler in a dual career household. Like so many of you, I wear a lot of hats and I have a lot of jobs. With She Said, She Said podcast, I'm sharing what I've learned that's helped me, and more importantly, I'm drawing additional perspective from a broad range of women who are creating opportunities for themselves and others. Their stories hold incredible advice and perspective about common challenges and the best ways to tackle them. My goal is to leave the world a little better than I found it. This podcast is one piece of that puzzle for me. I know your time is precious, and it can be hard to take time out for yourself, but stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hi friends, I have such a great show for you guys today. My guest is the trailblazing two-time Emmy and Gracie award-winning business news journalist, Maria Bartiromo. For more than three decades, Maria has told us what we need to know about business and financial news and has covered every major story since the early 1990s. She is the very first person, man or woman, to broadcast live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Now, in order to break that barrier, she had to fight bullies and deal with more than her fair share of abuse. Remember, this was 1995. She's done that, and she built allies along the way. She's going to talk about what she learned and what we can learn from her. Now, at the same time, she also found her niche and created a new way of covering business news that hadn't previously existed. Maria continues to rise and shine every morning at 3 a.m., well before most of us really consider it even morning. From her early days at CNN Business News, where she got her start, to her 20-year stint at CNBC, to her current post as Global Markets Editor at Fox Business, she's shaped the way business and financial news are covered, and she's helped us see how we can apply a business lens and perspective to practically every major news story. Currently at Fox Business, she leads 17 full hours of live television each week, and she hosts three shows, including the highly rated daily show, Mornings with Maria. When she's not doing all of that, she's writing books and articles to help us make sense of the world. She's literally the first person many people think of when they think of the intersection of business news and everything else. Her incredible 30-year career has even made her a question on Jeopardy. Her list of accomplishments is truly extraordinary. Maria's latest book, her fourth, is entitled The Cost, Trump, China, and American Revival, which she co-wrote with James Freeman of the Wall Street Journal. I got a sneak peek at the book, which is terrific. It comes out next week on October 27th, but you can pre-order it via the link in the show notes for this episode, episode 123. Today, I'm talking to Maria about challenging the status quo, about her incredible career, about taking advantage of amazing opportunities, about the new book, and what you and I can learn from her story. 
Maria, welcome to She Said, She Said. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you. You have had just an amazing career and you are known for your incredible work ethic. I think listeners would be very interested in what a typical day is like. I mean, I'm on 17 hours a week because I have a live program every day for three hours. So the morning show is um, Mornings with Maria from three to six in the morning. I'm sorry, from six to nine in the morning. Um, and it's the morning show. So it's three hours live. It's action packed. And then I've got a program on Sunday mornings on Fox News Channel, Sunday Morning Futures, and then another tape program on Wall St- uh, called Wall Street on Fox Business. I know I have a lot. I've got a lot of balls in the air. But, you know, as I always said, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy woman. She will get it done. And that's always what I say, because when I have three balls in the air and someone says, can you get this done? I say, give me another ball. I'm ready to do it. I love what I do. So I'm really grateful to be able to have this amazing opportunity right now to be doing what I love, talking about the content that I love, and also being on air uh, for all those hours every week. Yeah. Let's go back a bit and talk about how you got your start. You've been in this business for three decades, which is amazing. And I remember watching you in those very early days. But let's talk about how you got your start and talk about those early days on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You were a pioneer and a trailblazer. Yeah, I mean, I started my career really at CNN. I was a writer and a producer. And I would go down to the New York Stock Exchange from time to time to write and produce segments for other people who were on the air. And then I got, and then I got an opportunity to go on air myself as a field reporter with CNBC. And I had a great Rolodex of Wall Street sources and business contacts. And I think for the reason One year into my time at CNBC, they sent me down to the New York Stock Exchange. At that point, I became the first person to broadcast live from the floor of the exchange um, regularly. And it was an amazing opportunity for me to be that first person to be on the floor of the exchange because it was new to all involved. I was learning as I went along. The people on the floor were thinking, well, who is this person? Who is this woman with a camera in my face? They had to get used to it. So in the beginning, it certainly was. Um, it was challenging, I, I must admit. Yeah. But um, look, I think the biggest challenge was because it had never been done before. So when I started at CNN as a writer and a producer, I was entering a place where they were doing something completely different than anybody else was doing because this was Ted Turner CNN. This was an innovative uh, network that was trying all sorts of new things. And at the time, the first Gulf War was going on. And I remember as a production assistant entry level, watching reporters like Bernard Shaw and others under the bed in Baghdad saying, bombs are going off right now. Ted Turner was incredible. He wanted to you know, upend everything in the news business. And rather than waiting until 6.30 at night every night to get your news, he wanted to cover it as it was happening. Mm. And that was my education. I mean, that's what I walked into. So by the time five years later, I got to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, I knew how to cover a story as it was actually happening. And that's really the beauty of what I was doing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Remember, this was 1993. And so it was at the infancy of um, this individual investor revolution where individuals were thinking, well, if I arm myself with the right information, I could invest for myself and I could actually uh, create my own wealth long-term. That was also at the beginning of the dot-com boom. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I've been so fortunate to be able to have a front row seat in so many major cycles of our economy. In the beginning with the individual investor revolution and then the dot-com boom. 
and then the dot-com bust, and then the globalization theme where one thing would happen in one corner of the world, and then it was showing up and impacting things three seconds later in another corner of the world. And then, of course, the housing boom, where we went along with the same sentiment that we had during the dot-com boom, where we just bought into the notion that, oh, well, home prices are going up. So yeah. I guess they're going to continue going up. And that turned into a housing bust. And so then um, the, you know, the biggest uh, financial upset in a generation uh, was the recession of 2006 after the bust, uh, which led to the election of Barack Obama, the election of Donald Trump. All of this while I'm having this front row seat in the middle of things, interviewing the players and the faces of all of these stories. So I'm really proud to have been able to cover all of these things. And I feel like after that 30 years, I have a good sense of, you know, how the economy works and, and what has taken place in business in the last 30 years. Absolutely. So I have so, so many questions, but, but let, let's go back to those early days on the stock exchange floor. You were, you were blazing a trail, but you were also disrupting something that was largely the boys club. There weren't a lot of women. I don't know how many women were on the floor of the stock exchange back then, but my guess is not very many. And I'm sure that there were plenty of people that were mean to you. And I've, and I've read a bit about your story. But maybe talk to us about what happened, how you were treated, and how you kind of turned that around. I mean, how do you deal with a situation like that, thinking of our, our listeners as sort of looking for advice when they find themselves in a situation that might be somewhat similar? Talk about your experience and then what advice you have for them. Well, you're right. I mean, look, it was intimidating. There's no other way to say it. I'm walking into a sea of suits. I'm walking into a group of thousands of people, largely men, who are older than me, more experienced than me. And here I come trying to cover what they're doing. So it was definitely intimidating. And there was a small group of people who really did not want me there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had Dick Grasso on my side. He was the chairman and CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. And he had a vision to demystify what was going on on Wall Street. Remember, we were in the middle of this individual investor revolution. He wanted me there. He wanted me to communicate what was going on on the floor. But there were certain traders that they didn't want their business in the news and they didn't mm. want me around to understand what they were doing. And, you know, a couple, of, a couple of quick stories. I remember one day my boss's boss was coming to the New York Stock Exchange. That was Jack Welch. He was the chairman and CEO of General Electric. And that was the owner of CNBC. And I was so thrilled. I thought, wow, what a fantastic break for me. My boss's boss is coming down here. And I'm going to be the one to be able to show him around and show him the New York Stock Exchange, tell him how GE is traded and the flow of buyers and sellers in the stock. I had known this already because I had met George, who was the market maker in GE, a great guy. He had really taken me under his wing when I was there just a couple of weeks and explain to me what the flow of buyers were. Here's, you know, here are the consistent buyers who will buy the stock at 20, 21, 22, 23, even as it goes up, they keep buying. And then there's a consistent group of sellers. I thought this was really great info and I knew Jack would love to hear it. Mm-hmm. So on the day that I found out that Jack was coming down to the exchange, I made my way over to George because I wanted to ask George if he would show Jack around and, and tell Jack what he told me. But as I approached the post of GE, it really didn't look busy. There were about 15 guys in earshot that could hear sort of what was going on. And I said, George, and he, and this one guy was so angry and and just hating me. He came rushing over. He said, run along. This is not your business. 
uh, you know, I don't want you here. We're doing real work. This is not for your little TV show. And I was just taken aback. Obviously, you know, when you get those, those feelings, when you've got knots in your stomach, I'm standing there. I just said a guy's name, George, and I just got attacked. 15 guys are waiting for my response. They're waiting for a fight. Um, so I just sort of, you know, made sure to stay strong and reach from within. And I said, don't speak to me that way. And then I just walked away. I mean, I basically ran along, you know, but I came back and I kept coming back. I did bring Jack Welch over to George when Jack came to the exchange. George did explain to Jack what happened. And I made a commitment to myself that day that I wasn't going to allow these guys to push me around, yeah. that I recognized now there are people who didn't like me there and I was going to overcome it. And the way that I overcame it was I made sure that I knew my stuff. I made sure that I owned my job. Later that day, I called Dick Grass. So I said, you know, Dick, I don't know after the close. I said, I don't know why this guy's yelling at me in the front of, you know, 25 people, 15 people right next to me, um, you know, embarrassing me, harassing me. You allowed me down here. Why do I have to take this? He said, well, come up to my office after the close. We'll have a conversation about it. Okay. I went upstairs. Sure enough, there's this guy. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we're sitting knee to knee, and the whole meeting, he just belittled it. He said, look, stay away from me. His name was Mike Robbins. May he rest in peace, he passed away. And he said, look, don't come around near me. I don't want to see your face, and you'll be okay. Don't get in my business. I don't know about your little TV show, and I don't care. And I said, okay, what I learned later was Mike Robbins was on the board of the New York Stock Exchange. He was a really important guy. And he didn't want me there. And so he would ruin my credibility if he saw me talking to anybody. That guy would get, you know, creamed in trouble. And so that was also hurting me because it was hurting my ability to make sources. Yeah. So I would walk around the building to avoid Mike Robbins because he always had a nasty remark for me. So one day, you know, in the middle of the dot-com sell-off, I had to be in front of my shot. I needed to go on camera. I could not walk around the building to avoid him. So I pass him. And like clockwork, he makes another nasty remark to me. And he said something like, ha, save your money. In other words, you're not going to ever amount to anything. So save your money. So I turned to him and I said, no, you save your money. And then I kept walking and I thought, yes, you know, I, I finally answered this guy. It was just a little victory. Eventually, Mike Robbins left the floor. And then I was invited to a, um, I was so thrilled when he left the floor. <laughs> But then I was invited to a dinner for Goldman Sachs and I went um, with a friend of mine and I, and I was there and all of a sudden from the, there's all these Goldman guys and these important guys from Wall Street and I'm making sources and I'm feeling this is great. I have all these sources. Sure enough, corner of my eye, I see Mike Robbins walk in and I think, oh God, I better backpedal out of here. I do not want to see this guy. He's going to mortify me in front of all these people and I don't want to have a fight right now. I start making my way out of the event. Sure enough, taps me on the shoulder hello, Maria, it's Mike Robbins. I said, oh yes, hello. And he turns to me and he says, look, I'm sorry I harassed you all those years. I want you to know that I still haven't seen your little show, but I read your column in Business Week and you're doing a good job. And I felt so great about it. I said, Mike, I so appreciate that. Bygones be bygones, let's shake hands, forget the whole thing. And it just made me realize and it reminded me that you have to own your own job. You have to own your career. 
And when you arm yourself with enough information, when you own that job that you know that nobody knows this better than you do, you can't be touched and it's okay. So I always remind women who are coming up in, in our industry to say, look, you earned your seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Don't ever allow anybody to tell you differently because you earned it like I earned it. So you belong there, you should be there and you should be thriving there. Keep your head up high, make sure you own your job, know your stuff and you will get through this. Yeah. Where does this tremendous drive, or some might call it chutzpah, come from for you? Because it's sometimes easier said than done, right? When someone's really being mean to you and pushing you around, you know, we all have self-doubt to some degree. But how do you plow through that? And for you, where does that come from? Where's that strength come from? Well, I think it's the right question because oftentimes we learn this growing up. And I certainly did have a little bit of an edge. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in a middle-class family. My both parents worked really hard. They both had jobs. My father owned a restaurant. My mother um, worked, first she worked in OTB actually behind the, she, she had a great pension. She had, she was financially independent. She did everything herself. She had her OTB job when my dad needed her at the restaurant. She OTB, you, well. should, you should tell our listeners what, what OTB is. I know what well, that, that is. Well, was, that was off-track betting. Okay. Um, and it was a betting parlor, pretty much. My mother never gambled ever in her life, ever. But it was a good job. And she got it herself. She didn't go to college. And she would sit behind the glartician and, and, and put bets in. It was a horrible place because it was filled with smoke. Right. Um, and uh, people were smoking. It was back in the day when people thought it was okay to smoke cigarette after cigarette. I grew up watching my parents work incredibly hard, is the point. My dad, you know, owned this restaurant. I was the coat check girl at that restaurant as a little girl. And I think growing up in an environment where... You know, if I would say to my mother, look, I want to do this. I want to go on this trip. I want this. She would say to me, okay, you know, you can go, but how will you pay for it? What are you going to do? It was always, if you want this, you're going to have to earn it. And I think that mentality that I grew up with gave me this edge that I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make it myself. I'm going to be financially independent. And I'm going to make sure to, you know, to, to, to do it myself and, and, and be independent. Coming from Brooklyn, yes, I had a little bit of toughness. Actually, I didn't have toughness, but I made believe I did. And so yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I fooled them that I was tough. Well, it, it's sort you of that. You have to push back. Yeah. If someone's pushing at you, you have to push back. And wearing that confidence, even when you might have felt a little bit woozy inside, projecting that confidence too was probably, at least in part, how you were able to break through that. So one story that I had read, and you can tell me if this is true, but one of your mentors when you were contemplating going from CNN to CNBC, which was really where you got your big break, one of your mentors had said, this is the worst thing you can possibly do. I'd love for you to talk, A, tell me if that story's true, and, and B how you know the difference, right? When it's your mentor, somebody who you're trusting to advise you, how do you know when to listen and when to really dial in to what you know is right for you? Well, you're right. I mean, I think that you also have to trust your own judgment. And, you know, once you gain confidence that your judgment and your gut is telling you what to do, you have to follow it. So that was Lou Dobbs who said that to me. I was working at CNN Business News and I was a production assistant, then I was an AP, then I was a, an assignment editor. And um, 
I was doing really well because I was gaining a great Rolodex and I knew who to call with all these stories, but I would go out, interview people, write a script, and then I would give that script to somebody like Kitty Pilgrim or Terry Keenan, people who were on air, and they would go on air with my pieces. But then Lou, my boss, decided to um, upend the whole newsroom. He wanted to move me to the morning show and then I wouldn't be in the field anymore. So I knew in my heart that at that point I had found what I loved and that was being in the field and interviewing people, you know, meeting sources, getting information. I knew that when he moved, when he was going to move me, I wouldn't be in that position anymore to go into the field. So I, uh, the only place I really wanted to work was CNBC because CNBC was the only other network that actually respected business news. They mm -hmm. liked business and deals and I wanted to cover that. So I sent them my tape. What I did was I said to Lou, look, Lou, I'll thank you for the, um, you know, promotion. You're taking me off the assignment desk. It's not really what I want to do, but is it okay if I stay in the field after my shift is over and I go interview people after I'm done so that I could stay in the field? He said, Marie, you're making your, your day longer. I said, I know, but I really still want to be in the field. So I made it that I would be able to go out with the camera crew from time to time. And during that time when I was on shoots, I put my own tape together. I sent it to CNBC. They offered me a reporter's job on the air. And then I went and I told Lou. And I said, Lou, look, I got a, an opportunity to become a reporter on CNBC. I'm leaving CNN. And he said to me, Maria, this is the worst decision you're ever going to make in your career. They're not good. They're not as good as you here. You're making a mistake. Don't do it. And I said, well, look, I knew why Lou was saying don't do it. He trusted me. He wanted me at CNN. But I had to follow my gut. I had to say, well, what else are my opportunities here? At that point, I had seen that I had hit my glass ceiling, if you will, at CNN Business News. There wasn't another job that I wanted. I wanted yeah. to be in the field. He moved me out of the field. And so I took a chance. And, you know, I mean, I think in that situation, even though CNBC wasn't as established as CNN, there was something inside of me that said, this is going to help me grow. This is going to help me stretch myself. I stayed at CNBC for 20 years. Yeah. And then 20 years later, I decided to leave and go to Fox. Again, people said to me, you're crazy. Why would you go to Fox? You're the face of CNBC. You're doing well here. Right. It was because I saw an opportunity to grow. Mm -hmm. I had not covered politics. I had not covered Washington. I had been covering business for 20 years. And so I had to follow my own gut that told me, Maria, you're not growing anymore. You need to grow. And so that's why I think I followed my gut when I went to CNBC. Same thing. I saw an opportunity to grow. Yeah. And I think what you asked earlier was really important in terms of where does this come from? Because I think that part of it came from my parents because they showered me with love. They enveloped me with love. And I always felt as a, as a girl that I could shoot for the moon because if I missed, I was still going to land on my, my high heels because my family would help me. Mm -hmm. And I think when you have that kind of support from your family, from your parents, that they believe in you, that sure, you want to go try to be a reporter on air, do it. You know, you want to go, go to medical school, do it. And so when you have that kind of support, you do do it, mm. you know? And so I, I think that that's also very important. By the time I got into my career at CNN, CNBC, and then Fox, I was um, confident enough to know that I need to follow my own gut.
I had a chance to go back and in addition to reading your great book, The Cost, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, I read some of your older books as well. And one, um, The Ten Enduring Laws of Success, which I really, really love. But one of the things that jumped out at me, and I'm sure did uh, you at the time, was that so many of the CEOs that you talked to were men. There were a few women, but for the most part, they were men because that's what was there. And now we're quite a few years later <laughs> after writing that book, and there still are not very many women in that top CEO job. Give us your assessment of what's still not happening. Why is this gap not closing? It is not for lack of capable women out there. What is the problem? Um, there are so many capable women. I think women, for the most part, have their own ideas about how they want to approach their lives. I mean, look, we, we like having a lot of balls in the air. You know, this is a generalization, definitely. I recognize that. But I think as a woman, you know, I mean, for me personally, I, I love my job. I love covering what I cover. But I also love to cook and I also love to exercise. I like to do yoga. I like to bike. I make these things priorities. Mm -hmm. I, you know, somebody else might have kids. They have their kids. They have their family. We, you know, we, as a woman, we're the CEO of our host household. So we also have that. Right. And so, you know, for me, I feel like a woman does have choices. We make choices. I don't see it as a sacrifice. I, I see it as a choice. Right. I choose to work hard the way that I do, but I also choose to have five other balls in the air. Men, as a generalization, I know it's a generalization, but oftentimes they have their career and that's what they're doing. That's their priority. And I think when women take themselves out of the, you know, the hustle bustle craziness of, of, of you know, moving up the, the corporate ladder, they do have setbacks. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think that we need support from boards of directors. We need companies to recognize that it's essential to have diverse boards and diverse management teams. But I also think, you know, it's, it's up to a woman to make the choice. And I mean, I don't know why we're not seeing more women in the corner office. I don't, I mean, I'm trying to speculate as far as why, but it's crazy in 2020 that we're not seeing more of a level playing field. It really is. I mean, there has been some incremental progress, but you know, as I was, I really was struck by that in reading your book and thinking, hmm, <laughs> we really haven't gotten much beyond where you were then when, when you wrote the book. So it's an interesting, it's a very interesting dilemma. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, whether you think some of the big challenges that we've seen over the course of your career would have turned out differently or played out differently or maybe not occurred at all had we have more women in more senior positions in big Wall Street jobs at these big Wall Street firms. Would it have made a difference, do you think? Well, it's an interesting question because people say to me, you know, how was it being a woman on Wall Street? Do you feel that it's helped or hurt you? And, you know, I could, I could say, you know, in, in both times, I mean, on the one hand, the story I told you earlier about Mike Robbins, mm -hmm. he didn't want a woman there. Right. He, didn't, he didn't want me there. So, you know, he could have really, uh, he could have really stopped my rise and he could have really put, you know, put a dent in things. I mean, I didn't allow it to happen, but you do have that kind of challenge. On the other hand, being a woman in business, calling sources, oftentimes that source 
may, may want to have lunch with me rather than having lunch with another guy in a suit. So maybe it helped me in some regard. I think it was helpful to be a woman. I think when you're a woman and you own your position and you know what you're talking about in terms of your, your job, whatever you're doing, I think people look at you and say, you know, she's, she's got it together. She's, you know, a woman handling this, handling her family, and she also knows Wall Street cold. And yeah. so, uh, you know, for me, I feel like it was helpful. Yeah, yeah. So there was a New York Post reporter who gave you a particular moniker or nickname back in the day. And I've been curious about how you responded to that. Was that something that, I mean, it could be taken in a disparaging way, but at the same time, it sort of seemed to me that you didn't really take it that way necessarily. Talk about how, how that felt, how you reacted to this. Yeah, I didn't mind at all, honestly. I mean, you know, the New York Post came up with money, honey, because it, it rhymes. And honestly, nobody really picked up the phone and said, hello, money, honey. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was just the way that they referred to me on, you know, in their, in their newspaper. But I think that I was, and I have been, and I still am very comfortable with who I am and what my audience audience expects of me. Never once did I ever think, oh God, this nickname is going to make people not take me seriously. I never felt that way. I always felt like I had a real relationship with my audience and that my audience knew what they wanted from me and knew what I was going to deliver. I always felt that when I went on the air, I was talking about serious subjects. When I was interviewing leading uh, CEOs and investors, managers of businesses who were talking about real important information, and the audience knew it. It never really bothered me. People would say to me, doesn't that bother you? No, actually. I mean, frankly, I'm happy that I, you know, I was flattered to just get noticed. I understand you know, if that is a, a situation your whole career that you're always talked about as a nickname and not who you are. For me, honestly, it never impacted me negatively. I was grateful to have gotten noticed. And you know, it wasn't anything that was, I didn't take it so seriously. Yeah. I want to pivot and shift gears a bit and maybe tap into some of your uh, financial advice. We are in, still in the midst of COVID, unfortunately. I'd like to think that we're on the back end, um, but it, it's unclear as to how long this is going to play out and people are scared. Sort of what's your, um, what's your assessment of people maybe that are in some of the hardest hit industries, either with their financial portfolios or with their jobs or professions? What's your advice for them right now? Sit tight, get out, pivot. How should they be thinking about that? That's a pretty tough, broad question, but, but more just perspective around where we are at this moment in time, financially speaking. Well, look, I, I think that when you get thrown a curveball, like we have been thrown, I think you have to look at that curveball realistically. So where are we? We are in the middle of this massive pandemic, hundreds of thousands of people dead as a result. Our lives have completely changed. In the last several months, what we've seen happening is the digital economy is persisting more. Look at us. We're on this Zoom call right now. People are doing calls. They're doing Skype. You know, we're, we're ordering e-commerce, groceries being delivered. I think you have to recognize the reality of the situation. This is what has occurred. We have to catch that curveball, and it doesn't matter what the curveball is. It's really how you catch it. 
and right. how you throw it back. We have to recognize that the digital economy is only accelerating. Where we were at the beginning of 2020 was one place. Where we will be at the beginning of 2021 is going to be very different. These things that we're doing now will persist once we're out of the COVID lockdown. We may very well be using more telehealth, teleeducation. You know, I was never um, a, a person to order my groceries online. That's all I do now. Yeah. And I'm not going to change because now I understand this is easier for me and I, and I like it. So I think when you have a situation like we're in, no matter how surprising it was, we need to recognize this is reality. How am I going to play? in this new sandbox. So I think it's important to recognize the growth areas of the economy. Mm -hmm. It is digital. We are gonna see some of these things persist even more when we get out of it. Not everything will change entirely, but there will certainly be a digital economy that is much more advanced next year than it was at the beginning of this year. So that's one thing. I think another thing to recognize is there are industries that will be changed for ever. I mean, you know, you talk about travel, travel down 90%. It's going to take a lot to be able to get the confidence up again to travel the way we were traveling before this. Right. I, mean, I think, again, you have to look at this realistically. As much as we don't want to admit that I, you know, I want to go to Italy every, you know, every couple of months, it may very well not be the case that people are going to be jumping on planes. So what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you in terms of shifting your priorities, changing your life a little? Restaurants. Restaurants, I, would going, I was going out to dinner, lunches all the time, bringing sources there. I'm just not going to do it in terms of crowded restaurants that much. Even when we have the vaccine, I don't, I don't see myself rushing over to crowded places. You know, it's going to take time. Right. So unfortunately, there will be restaurants that will not come out of this that will go bankrupt there these businesses they live on cash flow if you don't have foot traffic you don't have cash flow it's a big deal you're dead and so i think that there are a number of industries that will not be the same structurally they will change there are other industries that are thriving look at amazon and you know and on delivery etc so i think it's it's important to take an honest look and how these changes may impact your life and try to adapt. You mentioned my book earlier, The 10 Laws of Enduring Success. Mm -hmm. One of those laws was adaptability. Mm -hmm. And that's what people like Jack Welch, you know, all these CEOs that I interviewed throughout the book talked about. Are you flexible enough to adapt to a changing backdrop, to a changing environment? It's really critical in terms of enduring success. And so that's why I included that one in there even before, you know, recognizing that it was going to happen to me in, in this pandemic. So I think that's one thing that's very important right now. Where we are, look, the economy has begun to recover. We're seeing some signs that jobs are coming back, little mm -hmm. by little businesses are opening up again, and it will take time, but we will see a recovery. We're expecting to see economic growth in the fourth quarter. The government with this enormous amount of stimulus, the Federal Reserve with an enormous amount of stimulus, will get back. It may not happen, you know, sooner, but right now what you're seeing going on in corporate America are CEOs trying to understand what the new normal looks like. And there are many areas of their business where they're saying, you know what? 
employees working from home, it's working. Yeah. I mean, my ratings are soaring. I'm doing my show every day from home. My ratings are soaring. I'm, you know, it's easier for me to get people on the phone. I'm no longer doing the breakfasts and the lunches, but I'm texting people. They're calling me right back. Mm -hmm. I'm having the same discussions that I would have had over breakfast and I'm booking them on the show. So the, the bookings are, are very strong. The ratings are very strong. I feel fortunate. Not everybody is in that camp that they can work from home and be successful at it. So I think it's, it's going to be uneven in terms of which sectors and how things play out. But I do think that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very positive advice. It's hard to know what to do. I mean, if you're in an industry, um, you mentioned um, hospitality. If you're in an industry like hospitality, it's very difficult to figure out how to pivot and what you can do to, to create an environment for yourself where you are working from home, right? And sort of what do you do next? It's a really, really challenging time. I want to completely shift gears and talk a bit about the state of the media. You've had a front row seat. Um, talk about how things have changed and evolved, maybe what's working, what's not working. Um, there's a lot of distrust in, in uh, the work of many of your colleagues about what people can really rely on. Maybe give us your assessment of the industry. Well, it's really a sad time, frankly, because things have become so political. And I think there's, you know, a, a fair amount of honesty in saying that the media has become politicized. And it's, it's sad because most people just want the facts and they don't want your opinion along with the facts. But the media has been unable to show any balance as it relates to President Trump. And, um, you know, I mean, this guy cannot do anything right, according to the media. And I think most people see that, you know, they didn't like his America First uh, program. I mean, uh, frankly, when he first started saying America First, I, I said to myself, well, I mean, he's the president of America. That's what I would expect. I mean, how would, what is he supposed to say? You know, China first? So I, I just think that it is somewhat disheartening to see that the media has been unable to get away from its just hatred of this president. And they do actively move to take him out. And so, you know, trust has plummeted. Uh, trust has plummeted in the media. I'm sorry to see that, you know, for two and a half years, there was this Russia collusion going on. And I knew that it wasn't true. I sniffed out this story from day one and I got slammed for it because I was having on my show Sunday Morning Futures on Fox News every Sunday the actual congressman that saw the redacted documents that saw the witness testimony of people in the FBI and the CIA who said there was never any collusion so from from day one I knew that there was no collusion but this every time I went on the air and said well this is what I learned yesterday on Sunday Morning Futures and this is what Congressman John Radcliffe told me. This is what Congressman Devin Nunes told me. I would get slammed. They mm. just didn't want to hear it. They yeah. went with this narrative and they kept broadcasting it. And I just think it's a sad, it's a sad day for journalism. I really do. I've been a truth teller and I'm trying to seek out the truth and people don't like it. It's a great pivot to your fabulous book. It's called The Cost, Trump, China and American Revival. Why this book and why right now? Well, I was looking at the uh, moment in time that I found myself in watching this incredibly unconventional president and the way that he impacted people, so polarizing. And I thought to myself, this is really 
a moment in time that we have to document. And so that's why I wanted to write a book about these last four years. I, I think, you know, when you just look at President Trump's policies, just the policies, take the personality out of it, take the tweeting out of it, uh, and, and you just look at what he's been able to do in terms of tax legislation, deregulation, uh, actually moving the needle on income inequality, actually moving the needle on peace in the Middle East and relations with Israel. I think it's quite extraordinary. And so when you just look at black and white policy, uh, it really did move the needle and take America forward. He actually will be one of the most consequential presidents we've ever seen, frankly. And that's because he's named, he's going to be naming a third Supreme Court justice. He's named 300 federal judges. That makes him incredibly consequential. Then it's very difficult to assess the performance of President Trump without assessing the enormous amount of resistance that he faced from the media, from inside the government where there was this entrapment going on, the FBI trying to take him down. It's all quite extraordinary. And so I wanted to write the book uh, at the end of his term to actually look back and say, where are we? What have we learned? Why this incredible polarizing person got to so many people, got under their skin, and I think the reason that he got under so many people's skin is because he came in guns blazing, drained the swamp, you did this, you're, you know, you're this, you shouldn't be there, and, you know, calling people out, names. And because of that, he upended the system. He actually, his existence threatens people's continued viability. And so people in Congress who've been there for 20, 30, 40 years, he's actually saying, what have you done for your constituents? Oh, really? Look at San Francisco. Look at the homeless problem in California. Look at New York. And as a result, they want him out. They don't want this overseeing of their performance. And so I think that's part of it. His existence threatens their existence. Um, so I thought it was really important to document our 45th president and what has taken place on his watch. Yeah. Are you bothered by the way he goes about, about doing his job? It's not just so much the calling people out, but doing it in a way that's oftentimes mean and really disparaging. There's, there's a meanness to it that, that I find troubling, even if I can agree with the outcomes. How do we reconcile that, Maria? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think he has an incredibly unconventional approach. It's not my approach. It's not what most people want to see in the, in the face that represents us as a nation, uh, as our president. But at the same time, what I've learned in these last seven years at Fox covering politics and covering policy is there's serious, there is a serious amount of mudslinging. I mean, mm. what I have seen in terms of the corruption is just extraordinary. That's one of the reasons that I could not get over what took place in 2016 and how there were members of the FBI that actually moved to entrap him and um, create, I mean, look, we just learned from the handwritten notes of John Brennan that it was Hillary Clinton's idea to tie Trump to Russia. I mean, that is just mind-boggling that now we know four years later that she had an idea this is I mean, and that's fine you know you ha you're a political candidate you're gonna dig up dirt on your political opponent i get that and that's what anybody would do right 
what really was terrible was how the government agencies went along with it. That's where things really turned incredibly, I mean, potentially criminal. Um, and so I, I actually couldn't get beyond that. I just felt like, wow, this really goes on? That that kind of corruption that you don't like your opponent, so you just make up a story and then you start running into his campaign so that you can unlawfully spy on it. So for me, the policies have outweighed the personality mm. and the massive abuse against him for me has weighed outweighed the the meanness. But yeah. I understand what you're saying. I get it. And um, I think, by the way, that's why his base supports him so much because they've never seen anything like this where he's calling out everybody and you know it is as you say in some ways not what you want to see yeah yeah and that make, it makes it hard it makes it hard to reconcile when you're raising little children you know say well the president does it but you you can't talk to people that way it makes it rather challenging in any of it right. so china's right. a big china's a big focus in this book as well and i know it's been a big big focus for you Maybe talk a little bit about how you talk about China. And I should say for our listeners, too, the book will be out October 27th. That's a week from today. We'll, we'll include a link to the book, The Cost, in the show notes for this episode, episode 123. But Maria, talk to me a little bit about China and your thoughts there. Well, I mean, I think the China is so fascinating because the Communist Party has made it very clear that the Chinese Communist Party wants to return China to the number one place in the world, the number one superpower of the world. And they've done that in a number of ways that anyone would say is wrong. In fact, they've been stealing intellectual property for decades. I think what happened with the U.S. and China's relations is over the last 40 years, the U.S. made, made a policy decision to open up China, to try to get the Chinese Communist Party to say, okay, this is democracy, this is independence, this is freedom, that's how that works in the U.S., it's actually good for people. Maybe we will open up a little more. Maybe we will, you know, change our policies a bit. That did not happen. In fact, the current communist regime in China has elevated Xi Jinping to Mao status, Mao Zedong, uh, which is a sharp dictator which sticks to the communist ways. So I think what you're seeing in the last two, two or three years is the CCP has stepped up its aggressiveness. Don't forget, they track their citizens. In a communist country, you don't have rights as an individual. You don't have that in a communist country. This is communism versus what we have, capitalism and democracy. And they track their, their, their citizens as they're tracking you. At the end of the year, you'll get a social score, meaning if you do something that is something that the CCP doesn't like, well, then you may very well not get the ability to get on a train. You may not be able to travel. That is what communism is. And so they also steal intellectual property. There, I have a list of companies that have sued Chinese companies for just lifting their trade secrets. In the book, I go through one story of a woman who worked at Motorola for 13 years who was caught at the airport with tons of data in her pockets. It was about $600 million worth of product of Motorola. She was detained at the airport because she had a one-way ticket out. She was, we learned then that she was also working for a uh, technology company in China where she right. was transferring the data. So it's things like this, I think, that have been revealed and have alerted the American people to 
the threats of national security risks. And one thing that President Trump did, which was very good, which was he was one of the first presidents to actually push back on China and create consequences for bad behavior. To Hong Kong just recently started putting in new laws and regulations. They were not supposed to take over Hong Kong for another 25 years. There was right. a handoff that said they can live autonomously you know, with freedoms. Now they're taking that back. They've militarized the South China Sea, even though that's not Chinese territory. They've invaded India and 20 uh, Indian soldiers are dead right now. So they've used this coronavirus as an opportunity to gain more territory. The Chinese Communist Party is a competitor to the United States. They want to replace the U.S. as the number one superpower. And I think people all over the world have to make a decision. Do we want a communist country being the dominant superpower of the world? I think not. I think you want a free country with democracy and independence being that leader of the world. So that's why right now you've got this back and forth between the two largest economies. Someone, one of them will be the superpower for the next 20 years. It's really, really fascinating. Okay, if you were to take a step back, you've had a, an amazing career and incredible accomplishments. Taking a step back, is there one thing that you're the most proud of? Well, I'm the most proud of the fact that I've lived my life with integrity and I've lived my life in trying to seek out the truth. I've tried to be a journalist that has courage, that seeks out the truth wherever it may be and whatever it might be. And I think it's important because in life, as you know, we all get thrown curveballs and you have to make the commitment today that whatever that curveball is, you're going to do the right thing. And we're all faced with dilemmas every day, all day. We all know in our heart of hearts what's the right thing. And I've chosen umpteen times, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to do the right thing. And if it means I'm going to peel away from the pack and I'm not going to follow the herds and say, this is what happened in politics, this is what happened in business, well, then so be it. It's hard. Making decisions to peel away from the pack takes courage. I'm proud of that, that I've been able to have that courage. Yeah. Oh, Maria, thank you so very much. Congratulations again on the terrific book. It was such a pleasure. I'm just so grateful that you took the time to be with us today. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. To learn more about my amazing guest, Maria Bartiromo, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 123. There you'll find a link to Maria's bio, as well as a link to pre-purchase her book, which comes out on Tuesday, October the 27th. It's called The Cost, Trump, China, and American Revival. Folks, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I would love to hear from you. Please go on iTunes and leave us a review. It really, really helps us move up the charts. Also, if you haven't had a chance, please be sure to subscribe and share us with your friends. I am grateful, as always, that you've taken the time to listen to this podcast and hopefully find it a great investment in yourself. This really is all about creating opportunities for ourselves and opportunities for others. And I am always, always so grateful to have you here. Take care and I'll see you next week.